coming up in this podcast, Canberra Turmoil, John Langelont, Perth Property Prices, Santos, Nichols Recovery, and our special report, Power and Energy. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast, and welcome Mark Beyer. Well, we don't want to dwell for too long on the events of the week in Canberra, but we can't ignore it either. Uh, Firstly, what's the latest, and of course, what does it mean for WA? Yeah, well, what a crazy week it's been. And uh, for most of us, quite a a disheartening spectacle to see the uh, shenanigans going on there. But, you know, end of the week, a new Prime Minister in the offing, Scott Morrison, won the leadership vote. So I think that the big picture for me and for people in the business community is that there's a, a relative degree of stability in government compared to what might have happened if Peter Dutton had got the numbers and was the new Prime Minister. Uh, Peter Dutton had flagged some quite dramatic policy changes, um, taking electricity out of the GST um, and a whole range of other things and question marks about the GST deal for Western Australia. So some some big areas of uncertainty there. Um, With Scott Morrison, um, he, of course, was the architect of the GST deal and he's been a key figure as treasurer and effectively right-hand man to Malcolm Turnbull. So things will continue with a relative degree of stability. But goodness me, after the week we've just had, we can't guarantee anything too much. No. Uh, Josh Frydenberg is the new Deputy Prime Minister. Um, Once again, he's been a senior minister. Um, I guess he fits in that sort of moderate camp. Uh, Julie Bishop had a crack at being the new leader and becoming Prime Minister. Uh, She was the first one knocked out of the ballot. So that raises a bit of a question mark about her long-term future. Uh, She's, of course, been Deputy PM for a long-term... 11 years. Amazing, amazing period. Um, And Foreign Minister. Deputy Leader, yes. Yes. (laughs) And, uh, look, Matthias Cormann is the other Western Australian that had a key role in all of this. Um, Finance Minister, major power broker, and it was his switch from Malcolm Turnbull to, to Peter Dutton that sort of brought on the second vote. Uh, But I think the expectation is that as a very successful uh, minister and a very respected minister, he will keep a a senior role and probably keep his finance ministry. Yeah. And look, uh, just back to Julie Bishop, I mean, it's interesting that, yes, she was the first one knocked out, but on the flip side, it it was all quite, uh, you know, a very, 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 very short-lived you know, amount of time to prepare and all that sort of thing. So you kind of wonder, you know, in t- normally others have more time to prepare. And I suspect Scott Morrison has been, you know, looking at this option many for many, many moons <laughs> behind the scenes, whereas I'm not... I think Julie must have just thrown her hand up as a, as a viable alternative if, you know, to, to give people a choice, which is probably just the right thing to do, I suspect. Um, now, Mark, uh, in contrast to the volatility of, you know, politics and political careers, uh, John Langelant uh, has navigated WA's political waters for decades as a respected advisor to governments of both hues. Now, what is he telling us um, that we should be focused on that's different than what we are actually focused on at yeah. the moment? Look, I caught up with John uh, last week. We had a really interesting long chat. Now, this was six months after he handed down his major report um, earlier this year on uh, government 
projects and programs during the Barnett years. And that became a, a blueprint for reform of the public sector. And so we had a catch-up to talk about, well, where have we got in that process? And it's an interesting counterpoint to the discussion about politics in Canberra, mm. because a lot of us sit back and say, well, hang on, uh, what about some policy work here, people? You know, you, you, you're fighting amongst each other, but what's actually going to happen on policy? And, and what's the, the long-term agenda? And that was a big part of John Langelon's report. You know, he talked about royalties for regions and a bunch of projects where there'd been budget blowouts, where there'd been very poor project management, um, very weak financial controls, uh, very poor governance, uh, very little transparency. And and these are recurring issues. Um, As he said to me, his report was the latest of quite a few around this theme. Uh, The WA Inc. Royal Commission canvassed a lot of similar issues. Uh, The McCarry Review... Um, Francis Burt did a major review. And there's all there's a consistency through all of them. Mm. Um, they want more professional management, better governance, more transparency. And yet, as John pointed out, governments are not very good at picking up this reform agenda. And he says you know, the issue is still there before the government. And he's a little frustrated that these sorts of things, which you know, he admits this is sort of the boring stuff. Yeah. You know, it's not the sexy headline-grabbing stuff, but this is the really important stuff. And you know, he says people should stop and reflect for a moment. You know, how much money was wasted on inefficient management of big government projects? And, and we all know royalties for regions being the classic example. Yeah. Um, if we had a, a better system to manage these sorts of projects. The other thing he spoke about a fair bit too was around the role of the public service. I mean, he, of course, was under treasurer for a number of years. And like a lot of people, he's frustrated that the... He feels there should be a bigger role for the senior executive service and that ministers um, really need to develop a closer and a more trusting relationship with their senior executive service. Now, these are the experts that have the deep knowledge around these different portfolio areas. And they've got a lot of value to add. Um, And yet their role often just gets swamped by the political cycle and the news headlines rather than a focus on what's really important. Yeah. So I found it, you know, a really interesting discussion. There's a a detailed write-up in our next edition. Um, And, you know, it's, as I say, a really good antidote to the political circus that we've had in Canberra over the past week. Yeah, look, fascinating discussion. And I guess the bit that you come back to is the pol- the politician's job, whether they like it or not, is to be the salesman of things. And I imagine they just struggle with stuff, like you say, that's sort of like the boring and the mundane. Um, and, and I suspect even though both sides of the fence agree that this change should come because they all cl- claim it at election time, I have the feeling that well, when they get into power, they're there to change the things they want to change, not this other stuff. And you've only got time for so many things. And there's only so many battles you can win. Why expend political energy and salesman effort, salesmanship's effort on something that maybe doesn't win you any votes? That's what I guess it must be about. And maybe there just needs to be a, a different process where that machinery government, using a different terminology for it, 
gets on with things and makes these changes somehow without it having to be a political selling point. Anyway, it just, it's just, that's just my thought for the day, <laughs> for what it's worth. Now, Mark, um, very different uh, change attack here. Our readers love news about property prices. So what's the latest for those who own property or want to own a home in Perth? Well, as we've discussed a number of times, the residential property market in Perth has been um, flat to weak for several years now. Uh, we get the monthly updates from CoreLogic, and they've just been a fairly consistent story. But Rewa has put out some interesting numbers where they've found uh, about a dozen suburbs which have actually delivered some really strong returns for investors that they're primarily in the western suburbs. In fact, the top performer was North Fremantle, 28% growth in uh, median price over the past 12 months. Yeah. Uh, Bicton was another very good performer, um, along with suburbs like Netherlands, West Leederville, City Beach, Claremont, Mosman Park. So these are the kind of suburbs that Rewa President Hayden Groves calls the aspirational suburbs. Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> At the top upper end of the market there? Yeah. Um, I was in aspirational because we, people want to aspire to live there? That's or? right, yes. Sorry, okay. I, th- I, th- I thought he meant home of aspirational people. Okay. Ah, no, no, no. <laughs> yes, that, that's where people want to get into. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I mean, there were a few other suburbs in here that, that were not as expensive. Um, Helena Valley, Kalaroo, Whitegum Valley, Leeming. So they're... they're you know, it's not all at that top end of the market. Yeah. But what he has pointed out is that there is actually more activity going on um, at that upper end of the market. And in fact, they're saying that 11% of house sales in Perth are now above $1 million. Mm-hmm. So you know, the median, 515000 but a lot of activity in that upper end of the market. Yeah, and that's what I, you know, look, I, I'm always suspicious of statistics and and obviously uh, suburbs that bounce out but obviously if you've had a difficult time then some of the some of the areas that are hardest to sell are those expensive areas and so it makes a bit of sense to me that as the market's recovering we're seeing because I don't know how volumetrically those sub what the volumes are to, to tell me is really just hey here's some of the price changes we've seen so it could be on quite low data um, and that makes sense. Here's some suburbs that really people have struggled to sell in for some years because simply people can't afford it. And now, yes, things are a bit, people are a bit more confident, so they're going in there and prepared to pay the price. So, yeah, pretty fascinating. Um, now, Mark, uh, domestic energy supply WA has a dominant, a new dominant force after Santos uh, paid $2.9 billion, is that right, for Quadrant Energy? Yeah, so this was a, a very significant transaction for Western Australia. So Quadrant Energy, that in fact was the old Apache energy business, uh, part of the, the big US group Apache. They sold out of Australia and in fact most of their international operations about three years ago. Um, the Quadrant assets were bought up by Brookfield and Macquarie Capital and then a few other investors including West Farmers and um, Angela Bennett's private company, AMB Holdings, bought into it. So it's been under private ownership for about three years. Um, a lot of talk for months now that some of the owners of Quadrant were looking to sell. 
they went a long way down the path towards doing a stock market float, uh, but then pulled back at the last minute, thinking, well, they weren't quite happy with the price, I believe. Mm-hmm. Santos was always uh, an interested party. Um, based in Adelaide, they've got a, a, a national footprint um, in, in both domestic gas and liquefied natural gas. Um, they're a growing business. In fact, headed by Kevin Gallagher, yeah. who very early in his career, when he was with Woodside, was a 40 under 40 award winner. Ah, there you go. Um, he then went on and joined Clough, big engineering group, before taking the Adelaide job with Santos. Yeah. So um, they've got you know, an interesting portfolio of assets. Um, they're actually already a joint venture partner with Quadrant. So things like the Devil Creek gas plant and the Varanus Island gas plant. Uh, Santos already has a big equity stake in them, but was not the operator. So effectively, they're now moving to 100% and becoming the operator, and they'll be the dominant supplier of gas into the domestic market. But do we know what sort of percentage of gas they'll dominate? Um, oh, look, I mean, I'm worried about notice, quoting sorry. a number. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, traditionally one of the big suppliers has been the Northwest Shelf Venture, but they've had um, a, a diminishing interest in the domestic market. Uh, Chevron is becoming a bigger player because as part of both the Gorgon and Wheatstone projects, there are domestic gas plants. Uh, but certainly, you know, at least half of the market um, would be coming under Santos now. Yep. So, you know, a very significant player. And um, as we've alluded to in the past, um, we've got a pretty good situation here in Western Australia with sort of assured supplies of domestic gas at reasonable prices. Yeah, Big yeah. contrast to the East Coast. Yeah, Our, our, our crisis was resolved some time ago. Yeah. And Mark, another question without notice. That, that sale price, $2.9 billion, can you recall how does that compare to what those parties bought the Quadrant Energy assets for? It's a little bit north of the purchase price. It was, in, in, it was bought in US dollars so there's some currency fluctuations here. So it was about two and a half billion. Right, okay. Was the amount they bought it for. Um, but th- I spoke to one of the advisors on the deal, and he said, "Look, there would have been dividend payments in the interim." Mm-hmm. Um, West Farmers, for instance, they had a 13% stake. Um, they said they're due to make a profit of about a hundred million dollars. Yeah, right. On okay. their three-year investment. Okay. So that they've seen a, a very big uptick. Okay. So good for them. Yeah, yeah. And. The final point here that made it particularly interesting, uh, Quadrant is an 80% owner of the Dorado oil field. That's the one that they own with Carnarvon Petroleum. Yep. And seen as one of the biggest oil discoveries we've had offshore Western Australia um, pretty much ever. I think it's rated as about the third or fourth biggest oil discovery. Um, And people who are fortunate enough to hold shares in Carnarvon Petroleum, they've just about tripled in value since the news on Dorado first came out. So another project in the offing. And there was a bit of a formula built into the purchase price so that depending on how big the oil reserves are, there'll be extra money going to uh, the former owners of Quadrant. Mm. So some and, you know, and, exciting upside. And would upside. it be fair to say that, uh, that Santos uh, are more like, have the skills to do a development like that versus Quadrant, which had bought a whole lot of operating assets and weren't really an operator or a developer, I should say, weren't a devel- wouldn't, wouldn't have had the skills to be a dominant player to develop. It would have been all new stuff for them. Yeah, look, they would have had to draw in expertise from elsewhere, but, um, yes, yeah, Santos certainly does have um, the skill level, and that was a point that the, the former owners made. Yep. 
Um, you know, they're, they're basically people like Brookfield and Macquarie, they're investors. They said it's time now to hand it over mm. to an operator like a Santos who can actually go ahead and do these things. Yeah, right. And it's nearly just like a, it's almost a classic private equity play, isn't it? You know, buy it, patch up a couple of things and and, and move it on in within three years. Um, you know, that that's typically what private equity do. Anyway. Um, now, we've mentioned many times in here about how uh, one of the big winners from the growth in the battery storage business is nickel. Um, now, it seems that opportunity is being more widely noticed. Yeah, we've had several pieces of good news on the nickel front. Uh, I mean, to put this in perspective, about three years ago, there was a whole bunch of nickel mines that were um, put into mothballs because the price had fallen so much. Um, we saw recently that Panoramic Resources has pressed the button to reopen their Savannah nickel mine. Uh, BHP's Nickel West, they're becoming increasingly bullish and they're investing serious money into that business. Uh, Western areas are looking at developing a new nickel project and now it's time for Poseidon Nickel. Um, a very famous name, of course, for people that remember the Poseidon nickel boom um, of the uh, 1970 or thereabouts. Uh, Poseidon Nickel, as a listed company, has been there all these years, but for the past four, five, six years, they've been struggling. They've got these assets, they've been looking at different ways of getting them reopened. Finally, they've come to a point where they're saying, look, the market supports reopening of our, in their case, the Black Swan nickel project. What made this particularly interesting, um, a US outfit called Black Rock Minerals came out of the blue last week and said, we want to buy you, here's an offer. Um, the folks at Poseidon said, well, actually, we're thinking about doing this ourselves, and they've got Andrew Forrest behind them. Mm. So they've come out at the end of the week, they're going to raise $74 million, which in fact is... Um, more than double what the company is currently worth, um, or in fact, I should say, will double what the current double what the company is worth. Yep. Um, and Andrew Forrest's private company, Squadron Resources, part of his Mindaroo Group, is effectively underwriting this capital raising. And, so, and is this Andrew Forrest's first foray into nickel well, since the nineteen nineties? No, well. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Anaconda Nickel. That brings back memories. Yeah. Um, now, look, he's been a shareholder in in uh, Poseidon Nickel for a long for, time, for yeah, quite course, a few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's interesting the way these things go around. His, his chief executive there used to be David Singleton, who then several years ago moved over to Austell and became chief executive of that business. Mm. Um, but you know, when David was at Poseidon, you know, he had some big growth plans, but the market just didn't sort of work out for them. Um, but Andrew Forrester sat there patiently, and he's decided to put some serious money into what is currently a small player and about to get going again as a significant nickel producer. Yeah, yeah, no, very interesting. Okay, well, there you go. That's a great, uh, that's a great update. Thank you. Now, Mark, um, reporter Matt McKenzie is focused this week on power and energy. What did he find there? Yeah, look, once again, um, it's kind of interesting to be talking about this topic because, you know, one of the triggers for all the leadership changes in Canberra was a debate around energy policy and the National Energy Guarantee. And there are some parallels with what's going on in Western Australia. So Matt's had a look at the 
you know, we've got this sort of big established base of coal-powered, um, uh, coal-fired power stations. Um, we've got some gas power stations, but a big push towards renewables. Um, there's a very long list of renewable energy projects that people are aspiring to develop here, worth about $3 billion all up. So lots of wind farms and solar farms. You can find them on our projects list, I presume. Absolutely. <laughs> on and BNIQ, up there with about 150 or more projects we've currently got detailed. Yep. So Matt's explored a lot of this debate, and you know it's around new technology and the associated regulatory issues having a big impact on the energy sector. So, you know, Ben Wyatt um, has a sort of a key role in this as a minister um, and faces some big questions about if and when the government retires some of its legacy um, coal-fired assets and how much the government allows the new renewables projects to develop. Yeah, okay. So Matt's explored that in a lot of depth. Uh, it's a six-page special report and a lot of detail there and, and, and lists of who all the different players are and, and what they're hoping to develop. Brilliant. Looking forward to reading that. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Uh, do you know an outstanding leader under the age of 40? The search is on again for WA's 40 under 40, for the 18th year running, we are searching for nominees to enter the state's leading awards program for young entrepreneurs. Our winners come from all sectors, resources, the professions, small business, technology and not-for-profit. Their entrepreneurialism may emerge as head of a business, from a career within a company or through politics or community work. We've had winners from farming, digital disruption, mining and science to name a few. If you think you're eligible or you know someone who might be, why not visit our website or give us a call and ask for Rosemary Grace for more information. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud. <laughs>